This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am excited to be back with you guys for what is now my second episode back from a little bit of a hiatus that I took for a few months. Uh, But I have uh, got myself set up here in a new office set up uh, for recording, and I am just ready to dive right in. Uh, So this week, we are going to be talking about a really exciting, uh, historic, actually, peace deal that took place in the world of international politics uh, not that long ago, and actually it's still been ongoing. Uh, and that's the the U.S. brokered deal to normalize relationships uh, between the United Arab Emirates, sometimes called the UAE, and Israel. And this is something that was um, probably a long time in, in the works, but it's, it's a pretty historic deal because, uh, as we've talked about on this podcast before in previous episodes, although it's been a while, uh, the relationship between Israel and many of the Arab countries uh, in the Middle East is pretty tense, uh, to say the least. They have not had historically very good relationships ever since uh, Israel was formed in its modern uh, state with its modern boundaries uh, in the 40s. But since that time, we have had a few Arab countries open their borders, so to speak, to Israel and and really kind of open those relationships there. Uh, it has not happened often, as we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, there's only been really three cases of quasi-normalized relationships between Israel and an Arab country. But we're also going to spend some time talking about kind of what the tenets uh, of the deal are on both sides, what, what each side's uh, conditions are for this deal to go through. Uh, kind of what countries are on both sides of this, the role the U.S. played in it, which is a really interesting one as well, uh, given some of the current political things going on in the United States. Uh, Then we'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, backlash that's come about from uh, certain other countries, as well as some some territories. Uh, And then we'll kind of get into what this may look like or what what it means going forward for for Israel and the UAE, what, what they get out of the deal. And then kind of what this may look like down the road for other countries. Is this going to be the first in a row of dominoes to set off as lots of countries start to normalize relationship with Israel? Or is this kind of another rare case and it's going to be another 26 years before uh, the next Arab country opens up uh, to Israel? So let's start with a little bit of the history here of Israeli-Arab relationships. This is, as I said, a pretty historic deal. The UAE, assuming this actually, actually, let me me back up a minute. So this was a peace agreement that was agreed to back about two or three weeks ago. I think it was the 13th of August, Uh, but it has not formally been signed yet. Uh, They are expecting it to be signed uh, probably in early September, so just in the next week or so, give or take. And that will be signed probably in the White House here in the United States. But assuming it all goes through, the UAE will be the third Arab country to formally normalize its relationship with Israel. Uh, This will be the first uh, country on the Persian Gulf to do so, and that's also pretty historic. Uh, The other two countries to do this uh, were Egypt back in 1979 
in Jordan in 1994. Uh, so the 1994 one is the most recent. It's almost exactly 26 years ago. I forget the exact month that took place. Uh, I want to say it was more like October and November. So uh, that was a little, little bit later, but we're almost at 26 years uh, since the last full normalization of relationships between Israel and a country in the Middle East like this. So let's quickly talk about those two deals. Let's start with the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty. This was the very first one. It was signed in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, back in 1979. And it's uh, pretty famous because it was following the uh, very famous uh, Camp David Accords. If you aren't familiar with that, uh, the Camp David Accords were in 1978. And it was just kind of a, a series, uh, I, think, I guess a pair is probably a better word. There were two of them. Uh, po- political agreements signed by the Israeli prime minister and the Egyptian president. And they were sequestered together at Camp David, which is a kind of a country retreat that the president of the United States uses. And they were there for almost two weeks. And eventually they they signed these deals. And the formal Egypt-Israel peace treaty was signed in March of 1979 by Egyptian president Anwar Sadat and the Israeli prime minister Menachem uh, Begin. Uh, and this was all under Jimmy Carter, and he was kind of the one who helped broker and witness this peace treaty back in in '79. Now, this was a pretty massive deal because it was formally ending what was considered a state of war that existed between Israel and Egypt that had pretty much been going on for 30 years, although it wasn't always you know a hot war necessarily. But they had been fighting on and off for for many years. Uh, the Six Day War, famously in 1967 when uh, Egypt was set to attack Israel. Israel took the first strike instead and ended up capturing a a large chunk of Egypt, actually, the entire Sinai Peninsula. But as part of this Egypt-Israel peace treaty, Israel agreed to give that back to Egypt um, and normalize the relationships. In exchange, Egypt would also push for peace and uh, formally recognize Israel as a state. Uh, Also gave things like uh, passage of Israel ships, through the Suez Canal, and notably, this became the very first Arab state to officially recognize Israel as a country and to normalize any sort of relationships between them. And again, that was in 1979 when it was formally signed. Um, Now, this was met with a massive amount of controversy, uh, especially across the Arab world. A lot of uh, countries saw it as kind of being betrayed by Egypt. Uh, especially among, say, Yasser Arafat and the the PLO, that's the Palestinian Liberation Organization. But on the other side of this, the world actually recognized this as a pretty big deal. And the Egyptian president and the prime minister of Israel actually ended up receiving the Nobel Peace Prize uh, for this. However, uh, it did have some uh, personal consequences for these countries. Uh, in particular, Egypt was suspended from the Arab League for about 10 years over this. And Anwar Sadat actually ends up getting assassinated a couple years later in 81 uh, by members of a jihadist organization who were pretty angry with him and for a variety of reasons, but in part because of this. But, you know, the aftermath of this is that uh this peace between Egypt and Israel actually has lasted pretty much since since that point. And Egypt has become a pretty important uh, partner for Israel uh, strategically and for trade and other things as well. And as part of the agreement too, the United States, I mentioned, was kind of in, in on this. Uh, Jimmy Carter helped negotiate this as one of his major accomplishments as president here in the United States. And as part of the deal, he agreed that the U.S. would help uh, with economic and military aid uh, to Egypt political backing for for governments in Egypt as well. 
And even though there have been a lot of concerns over the years that this peace may not last, especially when there was the big revolution in Egypt back in 2011, but it actually has held, and uh, as recently as 2014, the Egyptian president, uh, el-Sisi, pledged to continue and uphold that, that treaty. So that was the first one. Uh, let's jump ahead now to 1994. This is the Israel-Jordan peace treaty. Uh, this was signed by Jordan's king, uh, King Hussein, and the Israeli prime minister at this time, Prime Minister Rabin. And again, this one was signed in the United States. So signed it on the White House lawn, and this was under the U.S. President Bill Clinton. Now, this was, again, a huge deal. Now, in this case, Jordan is on their eastern border. So this is a, a, a large border country. Uh, Egypt actually does border on the south a little bit as well. So these are both border countries. Um, but it settled kind of relationships between the two countries, settled some of the, the land disputes that they have, water disputes, and really helped provide for kind of a lot more cooperation in terms of both trade and tourism uh, across these countries, in particular because there's a lot of tourism right now that, that where people will visit one of those two countries and then want to cross into the other, especially visiting Israel and wanting to go visit, visit say, Petra. And as part of this deal in particular, this was kind of a little bit of a unique element. Both countries pledged that neither of them would allow their territory to become a staging ground for any sort of military strikes by, a, by another country, a third, a third party in this. Now, other things that kind of were part of this deal as well, kind of in smaller roles, uh, cooperation against terrorism. So they agreed to help each other in fighting terrorist attacks. This would include all kinds of different violent attacks, uh, smuggling border attacks, those types of things as well. Uh, they agreed to exchange uh, embassies, so this established diplomatic relationships. And there were some agreements about how to handle and assist re refugees, uh, particularly in the Palestinian territories, especially because part of this deal uh, formalized, and I guess you would say codified, the line that separates Jordan from what is now the West Bank. Now, this also had some consequences. In this case, the Israeli Prime Minister Rabin was actually assassinated in 1995, so about a year later, uh, by a Jewish extremist uh, who was trying to undermine some of these peace efforts. Um, but it actually ended up, that assassination actually ended up drawing the countries even closer together because uh, King Hussein in Jordan actually was invited to give a speech at the funeral in Jerusalem. And so it was the first time the Jordanian king had actually been in Jerusalem since the 1967 war. So it had been almost 30 years. And in particular, uh, Hussein's speech drew a direct comparison between uh, Rabin's assassination and his own grandfather's assassination back in the 50s. Uh, and basically suggesting that they were very similar um, and that they now shared a legacy in that way. Now, this relationship has not been without conflict. There have been clashes between forces uh, in Gaza, the West Bank. Again, the border regions in particular are kind of the, the hot spots of it. But for the most part, this, this deal has held as well. But this was the last time that we have seen such a deal take place uh, until just recently. And that's now the first time that we have a, an agreement between Israel and a Middle Eastern Arab country uh, that is not a border state. Uh, and this is the United Arab Emirates, also called the UAE. So the UAE uh, agreement was set, as I said, just a few weeks ago. I believe it was August 13th of 2020. And 
assuming it gets signed and everything, it'll become the third country to do so. Now, at the moment, the the idea here is um, that Israel will agree to suspend some of their plans for annexing and bringing in parts of the West Bank into their formal national territory. It would normalize uh, relationships for trade and those sorts of things. And it would open borders for uh, people to travel between the two countries. And in fact, uh, just recently, as of actually the same day, I'm, I'm recording this on August 31st, and it actually had, took place earlier today uh, for me, the first direct commercial flight from Israel to the UAE ever uh, took place today. Now, by the time you guys hear this, it'll be a day or two old, but that was a, a major deal. And we also had the very first time, this is now a couple weeks old, that there were uh, telephone calls that could go between the UAE and Israel because for, for a long time, the UAE had blocked any sort of direct dialing using Israel's country code. And so now you have telephone calls, so communications across the border, you have plane flights, so travel across those, those borders uh, in between the two countries. And actually... This is even more fascinating, too, because it, it piggybacks onto something we talked about a while ago on this podcast in the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, those relationships are not normalized, but they have actually been taking some baby steps in that direction. And one, one of the big ones that I think we talked about, this has been months ago now, is that Saudi Arabia now allowed uh, planes flying to and from Israel to cross over its airspace. And so building on what's now happening today is that this flight from Israel to the UAE actually flew over Saudi Arabia, which is, again, pretty big deal, and into the UAE, which is even bigger. Now, this relationship between Israel and the UAE does not actually ha go back a long ways. Uh, while the relationship has always been kind of cold, uh, going back to when the UAE became an independent country in 1971, uh, their very first president referred to Israel as one of their enemies. But they don't have a, a much of a history. They don't share a border. You know, they haven't really been involved in major conflicts with each other or anything like that. Uh, but it remained fairly cool up until about the 2010s, give or take. And a few things started to change at this point. One was the relationship between both of these countries and Iran. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about Iran probably after the commercial break and how they play into this. But there have been several moves over the last decade or so that show these two countries getting together to try to improve um, public relations. In particular, you can go back uh, as far as 2012, at least, when the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu met with the, the Foreign Minister from the UAE, uh, Abdullah bin Zayed uh, al-Nayan. Uh, they met in New York, so new, neutral territory. Didn't produce much at the time, but you could see kind of that would be a stepping stone and then several other stepping stones over the years between Israeli intelligence and uh, the UAE um, and various ambassadors. Uh, there was a, an Israeli minister of national infrastructure who attended a, an energy conference in, in Abu Dhabi. The International Renewable Energy Agency is headquartered in Abu Dhabi. And so you have the energy mi minister of Israel who had visited there. And so you see over the years kind of these small baby steps leading up towards this. But then this year was kind of the big breakthrough moment. And so we have a disagreement that took place, uh, again, brokered by the United States, this time under U.S. President Donald Trump. Interestingly, all three of these deals have been brokered, at least in part, by the United States, going back Carter, Clinton, and now Trump. 
Um, we can talk about that again after the break too, kind of why the U.S. is is involved in some of this. But uh, this deal is uh, really a pretty big one because it's it's kind of the, in my opinion, the first of what I expect to be several dominoes to fall in the next, say, handful of years to decade. And there's a few reasons for that. I'm both, again, talk about this after the break, but I do think this one is somewhat different from the first two in its reasoning. But before we get to the commercial break, I do want to touch on a few things here in looking at how the rest of the world has reacted to this. Now, obviously, most of the Western countries would be the United States, Canada, most of Europe, uh, good chunks of South America have all been in support of this deal. But you also have countries like India. Uh, China has, has openly come out in support of it. Uh, you have countries like Egypt, which has as well. Obviously, they, they have normalized relationships too. Jordan, same way. Uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand. So there are quite a few countries that have kind of come out in support of this deal. There are a handful of countries that have uh, opposed it. Uh, most of these being Middle Eastern in nature, uh, Iran, big one. We're going we're, we're to talk about Iran on the other side of the break. Uh, Turkey, Syria are both uh, opposed. Uh, Pakistan would be another one that has kind of come out and there's been a lot of demonstrations uh, across their country to condemn this deal. And interestingly, uh, South Africa is another one that has come out. They're kind of the one outlier in the openly opposing the deal countries. And then Probably the most interesting of all is the countries that have uh, been neutral. And this is where I think we can learn the most about this. Uh, in particular, there is one major country that is neutral, and that is Saudi Arabia. And I think that's a really interesting move by them because they are one of the largest countries in the Middle East. They're by far one of the most powerful countries in the Middle East, especially on an international level. And as I've said, we've seen them kind of take a few baby steps in the direction of normalization of relations with Israel as well. But I think their neutrality on this is something to be very interested in and something to follow going forward. Uh, also, uh, Le Lebanon, which is on the northern border of Israel, formally neutral on this, also really interesting. That That's another border country. And then one I noted as being opposed uh, is, is a really fascinating one because while there are a lot of protests and rallies in the country opposing this, on a national level, the country of Pakistan actually has been more neutral than you might expect. Now, they have been much more cautious in their uh, dealings with this, particular, um, particularly because they, they tend to be very on the side of the you know, Palestinian state. But they, the reaction was not one of condemnation or, or direct opposition, which is really fascinating to me. Uh, there are a couple others as well, but uh, those are kind of the big ones, I think, that are worth uh, focusing on going forward. Uh, now, we're going to go ahead and take a short commercial break. Uh, just give me a chance to rest my voice. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk about what this deal actually does for Israel and the UAE, as well as some of the impacts going forward for those two countries, but also for uh, the world. We'll talk about the U.S. relationship uh, in this, why they're involved in all three of these deals. We'll talk about Iran and why their presence, I think, makes this deal unique and different from the other two. And then maybe we'll see how time's going, but maybe we'll kind of touch on where I think this is going next. Uh, we'll muse about uh, potential future countries that may be following suit or not. Uh, but let's take a quick commercial break and I'll be back with you guys in just about a minute. 
And we are back. Thanks so much for staying with me through that little uh, commercial break. So we're going to talk about, for the rest of the episode, a few things. I want to start by just kind of touching on what this deal actually is, what both sides are are agreeing to, and then we'll kind of move from there. Uh, so the agreement specifically deals with their general diplomatic relations. So exchanging embassies, exchanging ambassadors, uh, cooperation across the board on all kinds of issues. And these are similar to what you would find with the other deals I talked about. So things like tourism, trade, but also uh, cooperation in education, healthcare, uh, security. However, these things may take some time to go forward. And in fact, uh, it's thought that the presence of an embassy in Jerusalem, so UAE embassy in Jerusalem, probably won't happen for a while, uh, specifically because they're still a little hesitant about the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. The UAE still says it's going to continue to support the idea of a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. But in general, the the agreement here is on kind of political, diplomatic, and what you would consider, I guess, social fronts. Things, like I said, like healthcare, education, those types of deals. Uh, but trade as well. And as I mentioned, you now have things like uh, communication across borders with telephone calls and transportation between the two countries with direct flights uh, from Israel to the UAE. Now, in exchange, uh, Israel, as I mentioned before, has agreed to kind of suspend some of their plans for annexing parts of the West Bank. So that's kind of the basic understanding of this. Now, once the agreement is actually signed, we'll get a lot more details about how this is going to play out uh, down the road. But we're already seeing moves in that direction. As I said, the, the plane flight and the telephone calls have already started. All right. So from there, let's move into kind of the United States' role in this. Um, as I mentioned before, the U.S. has been a part of all three of these deals, going back to Jimmy Carter with Egypt, Bill Clinton with Jordan, and now Donald Trump with the UAE. So why is the United States such an important or uh, omnipresent presence uh, in these types of deals? And I would start by saying that while it's, it is definitely a bit of a cliche, there is a benefit to the world of there being peace in the Middle East. But I do think like there is incentive for countries like the United States to get involved in these deals to begin with. But then the question is, well, why is it the United States and not the UK or France or China or Russia? You know, why is the United States in particular such a big part of this? And that is less simple to understand. But I do think there's a couple elements at play here. One is, is simply that the United States is the world leader. We are still considered the strongest power in the world. And so getting the United States on your side in any sort of deal is a pretty big incentive and a pretty big power backing this this treaty. And you, you can look at things like the League of Nations. This is going back a ways. But after World War One, they tried to set up something called the League of Nations. This was a treaty among a lot of different countries. It's kind of the precursor to the United Nations. But the U.S. never officially joined it. And the whole thing kind of fell apart. Now, there are a lot of other reasons it fell apart, too. Uh, I've actually talked about this in the previous podcast. If you're interested, you can go back and find it. But the lack of presence of the world power at the time, actually, we weren't even like necessarily the power. We were just one of several. I think after World War II is when we kind of became the power with, with nuclear weapons. But we were one of the top couple powers in the world at the time, and we didn't join this treaty, and it kind of fell apart. So in these types of major deals that are going to have long-lasting, hopefully, 
and international implications, it's really good to get a world power on your side. And the United States is kind of uniquely positioned for that as the strongest world power. Beyond that, the United States has deals, or I should say has um, incentives for a peaceful Middle East beyond that too, in terms of things like oil, uh, in terms of things like fighting terrorism. The United States has gotten way more involved in the Middle East since the advent of 9-11 and uh, in international terrorism coming out of the Middle East with a lot of these radicalist groups. So the U.S. you know, has been kind of the world leaders in pushing to fight terrorism. So being involved on that front also is a pretty big deal. Now, the United States, though, also has kind of a unique relationship with one of these parties, and that's that's Israel in particular. Although the U.S. does, I mean, we have relationships across all of the Middle East, but in particular, our relationship with Israel is kind of a, a more unique one than, than most. Uh, we have some very uniquely strong ties there from religiously to culturally. You know, we helped uh, alongside Great Britain and France setting up the Israeli state back in the 40s. And there is kind of this unique relationship that the people of the United States seem to have with the country of Israel as well. And so being kind of on the side of Israeli peace is is good for American politics. And it's something that just has carried through for decades, really. But despite the U.S. having uh, kind of an outsized interest in Israeli peace and Middle Eastern peace, and despite there being kind of a, a long-standing international interest in peace in the Middle East, this is a little different, I think, than the previous two. And that's because of kind of two things that are going on. Um, one is that this is not the only country that's been moving this direction. Uh, Egypt was kind of a, a huge outlier at the time back in 79. Even Jordan was, was kind of a shock to the world in the sense that they're just were so few countries in the Middle East even moving you know, towards positive relationships with Israel. But today's political landscape in the Middle East is different. And we have seen other countries, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia being a big one, that have taken kind of some of those baby steps in that direction. And I think we'll see some others moving that way as well. But the the biggest difference, I think, that is driving a lot of this is the country of Iran. And this is really tricky here because the country of Iran, A, they're very against this deal, right? Iran, they had a news agency that came out calling this shameful. Their foreign ministry uh, called it a dangerous stab in the back. I don't think that's a direct quote, but I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And so th they are very, very anti this deal between the UAE and Israel. And a lot of the reason here is that Iran has emerged in the Middle East as a particularly dangerous challenger to the current social setup of, of countries in hierarchy. And you have a lot of countries like, for instance, Saudi Arabia, that have been butting heads with Iran for a long time. And when you combine that with Iran's push into the nuclear realm, I uh, remember the Iranian nuclear deal that was a huge deal under Obama, but they've been kind of pushing for this for a long time. There are a lot of countries in the Middle East that are starting to see Iran as a major threat to their power, their sovereignty, especially some of the major countries, and especially countries that are near Iran, like the Gulf states, like the UAE. And so you have countries, I think, that are starting to realize Iran may actually be the bigger threat to them 
than Israel. And that's, there's probably a lot of different reasons that are going into that, but you have kind of this longstanding rivalry between like a theocratic government, like you have in Iran, like truly theocratic with some pretty radical ideas, pushing for nuclear weapons in a Middle East where their specific theocracy doesn't always adhere to the same tenets as other Muslim countries. I've talked about this again on the podcast, previous episodes, go back and find it. But the difference between like Shia and Sunni is a big deal. And you have country, you have countries that have kind of aligned themselves along these lines. And in many cases, that distinction between Shia versus Sunni is more contentious, at least at the moment, than the relationship between them and the Jewish state of Israel. And so I think what you're seeing is a lot of countries slowly coming to this realization that Israel may actually be the more stable ally against Iran than anything else. And in particular, Israel is a very strong country militarily as well. And so forming these allies and relationships before Iran becomes capable of really launching some sort of attack is something I think countries may be looking at down the road. Now, obviously, don't know that for sure what's going on in their heads, but I think that's that's a pretty big deal because we have seen the relationship between many countries in Iran, as I mentioned, Saudi Arabia being kind of a big one, becoming more and more hostile. At the same time, you see these countries moving baby steps towards a more peaceful relationship with the country of Israel. So I think that in and of itself is kind of changing the, the calculus of the Middle East at the moment. I don't know how long that'll last. I can't even say that that is the primary driver of this, but I do think it's a unique factor, a unique variable in this particular deal that you didn't see in, say, Jordan or Egypt. And so because of that, uh, I suspect this is much more likely to be the first in a series of dominoes that may fall over the next five to 10 years, whereas the Egypt and Jordan ones clearly were not. They were kind of outliers. But this has the real potential then to be a, a very historic event, uh, a real game changer. As I said, it's the first time this is done in 26 years. And the Iranian nuclear threat and the Iranian terrorism threat, I actually didn't mention terrorism earlier, but Iran is one of the largest state sponsors of terrorism as well. So countries see that as a major threat. Uh, and so I think uh, people in these Arab countries, particularly in the leadership, are looking at the threat or potential threat coming out of Iran and asking themselves the question, who is really my foe here? Who is my enemy? And who is the, who has the potential to be my friend? And actually, in fact, I would argue, and I'm not the first one to, to suggest this. I don't remember exactly where I, I first read it, but I think it makes a lot of sense. The Iranian nuclear deal that happened under President Obama, I think actually probably almost inadvertently or accidentally helped push this deal with the UAE and Israel to go through because the Iranian nuclear deal left out a lot of the Sunni Arab states in the area. They also left out Israel in their in discussions of how they're going to go about doing this. Uh, Obama was really kind of dealing directly with Iran, almost behind the scenes, secret negotiations. I think a lot of countries looked at that and were blindsided by by this deal. And they realized, you know, I'm going to need a friend in the region that is also anti-Iran and, and be willing to help me if something ever were to come down the line in 10 years. And I think that has helped push countries like the UAE towards Israel and may continue to do so going forward as well, making this particular deal a um, especially historic one. 
Now, as I mentioned, as part of this, we did see the first plane flight between the two countries. Uh, there were actually representatives from the United States on board, as well as uh, many other countries as well. Israel's national security advisor was on it. Uh, one of the senior advisors to Trump, Jared Kushner, actually his son-in-law as well. He was one of the delegates on board this flight uh, as well. You actually, if you are on Twitter much, there are all kinds of photos that popped up of taking photos outside the plane of them flying over Saudi Arabia, of them coming in and landing, all kinds of things. It's, um, it's a three-hour flight that's taken 70 years to happen. And I think this may be a pretty important and exciting turning point uh, in relationships between Israel and the Arab world that the, that the Jordan and Egypt ones were not. Now, I'm going to take a step back and talk about kind of the implications for these countries going forward. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, the deal itself gets a lot of concessions on trade and things like that. But there are some other kind of longer term implications here that I think need to be mentioned on, on all sides. And I'll actually include the United States in this, all three partners in this, U.S., UAE, and Israel. Uh, Israel got probably their most important piece of the puzzle here, and that's the, the regional recognition of them as a, a sovereign Jewish state. A lot of the countries refuse to even recognize it as a state that has a right to exist. Some of the states, like Iran, have come out and said they, they deserve to be wiped off the map. So having another regional country assert its uh, recognition of the Jewish sovereignty is a pretty big deal on kind of an international front. They're adding one more country that was formally opposed to them on their side, at least in terms of their right to exist as a country. The UAE is going to benefit from linking their powerful trade markets. And again, they're, they're actually one of the richest countries in the Middle East too. So they're very, very wealthy. But now they have a new link to the region's strongest superpower in terms of like military strength, uh, cyber security. And so they're, they're linking their economy into a, a much stronger infrastructure uh, with what you would consider the Middle East, one of the Middle Eastern superpowers. Uh, and then it also helps normalize relationships with the rest of the West as well through Israel. And so that can be a pretty big opening for a very small but very wealthy country that has the potential to really even expand on their wealth further. On the U.S. front, this is actually really interesting because for Donald Trump, and I've, I've been very critical of him and especially his um, international relations policies on this podcast. I don't think he really has a good solid grasp of international relations, but this becomes almost overnight, his crowning achievement on the level of, and I realize this is going to be an unpopular stance, but on the level of potentially even winning a Nobel Peace Prize for this, especially if this starts a trend of other countries moving that direction too. I know a lot of people can't stand him. I myself have not been thrilled with some of his international policies in particular. Um, I just don't think he's very well versed in it. But this one deal, this is bigger on the international stage than almost any U.S. president has has accomplished since maybe Reagan and helping end the Soviet Union in the Cold War. I mean, we're talking 20 plus years at least and probably closer to 30 if we really want to get into like the the best foreign policy out like an in individual outcome. Uh, you, you can argue others may have had better foreign policies overall. That's that's a different argument. But in terms of like one individual policy or one individual uh, circumstance, this has to be right at the top of the list for any U.S. president, uh, especially if if it goes down the route that I kind of expect it will and pushing other countries in this direction too and becoming a domino effect. 
for whatever you, you think of Donald Trump in any other capacity, this is a pretty major achievement. Uh, he can now claim to be a peacemaker in the Middle East, which is historically obviously a pretty ver- a pretty tough place to make peace. And so all three of those countries involved really get to point to something and hang their hat on that as a successful deal and go back to their people displaying what they have to show for it. Now, analysis of any deal like this would be incomplete without really discussing the Palestinian approach and their response to the overall outcome just because of their role in some of these negative relationships that countries have had with Israel over the years. Uh, and in fact, the UAE itself for a long time had, despite never like fighting a war with Israel or anything like that, there was no hot conflict, but they had long rejected any sort of peaceful d- diplomatic normal ties with Israel because of the Palestinian state issue. However, this support for Palestine has started to erode over the years as well. Palestine has allied itself with Iran as one of their kind of proxies. And so as the enmity towards Iran has been growing, there has been a much larger distrust of some of the, for some of the political Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas. But Palestine itself and you know, its allies like Iran have, have been very hostile towards this, calling it a betrayal, calling it a stab in the back. And I think what you're seeing is that this really will push some of the Palestinian leadership into kind of an awkward position where the deal itself actually has a minor benefit to them. And again, I talked about Israel saying they will stop pushing for the annexation of parts of the West Bank. So there is actually a slight benefit to them. But in the long run, this is kind of a loss of a major ally for the Palestinians. And I think the Palestinian people are going to have to look at this and wonder if their leadership that they have put into power, Hamas in particular, is accurately and um, appropriately re- representing them on the international stage in a positive light or not. Because this this loses Palestine a, a fair amount of leverage. Uh, this UAE is a very prominent Arab country on the international stage because of its wealth. And they had a fairly unified stance against any sort of official relations with Israel. In fact, there's a, a UAE law, I think back from 72, give or take, that this deal officially overturns. And so we're going to see a really interesting dynamic play out here among the Palestinian people as, as they look at this and try to decide, is this truly a betrayal by the UAE and other countries that potentially may follow it? Or is this a failure of their leadership that they've put into place by not portraying themselves in a positive, friendly light to their allies? Um, Because if your allies are starting to see you as suspicious and not trusting you, that could be um, a sign of poor leadership as well. And so I think the people of of Palestine are going to need to take a good hard look at this and really see what they believe the reasoning for this and what the solution is down the road. And then, of course, outside of Palestine, too, other countries have spoke out against it. You look on Twitter, there were quite a few uh, anti-peace deal hashtags that were trending in many countries, especially some of their neighboring Gulf countries. I think as other countries start to look at this deal and see the results of it, so this may be, again, a multi-year process, maybe even a decade, this could have either a backlash if, if it fails 
or it could have um, a domino effect if, if other countries see it succeeding. I do think some of these countries uh, in the Gulf feel like they should have been negotiating on this deal as well. It should not have been a one country thing. It should have been some sort of like a like a pan-Gulf decision that was put into place. But the UAE leadership as a whole has some of the highest trust from their people of any country in the Middle East. And I think it's something that will be gradual for the people culturally to become more accepting of it as well. Uh, while historically they have opposed deals like this, I mean, there was a, a poll not even that long ago that showed something like 75 to 80% of citizens of the UAE were against normal relationships with Israel. When the deal happened, there wasn't exactly a huge outcry against it among the people either. Uh, so it's it's always been kind of a much more moderate opposition as opposed to an extreme one. And this is something that I think will just be a, a gradual move, especially as they start to wait and see what the long-term outcome of this will be. And of course, that's, I think, probably a stance that most of the world will be taking too. It is something, of course, that here in the United States will be talked about a lot uh, leading up to the upcoming election, which is in just over two months here for, for the president in the United States. Now, people in the United States, we don't tend to vote based on international relations. That's actually a pretty big deal. I mean, I, I studied international relations, so I think it's important. But when you look at like why the individual person votes, they're much more likely to vote based on domestic issues, not international ones. But it is, it's probably Donald Trump's biggest achievement. And it is, and to be fair, it is a big one. I mean, credit where it's due. It's This is a major, major deal. Uh, so it will be talked about a lot here in the United States, but it's also something that will be talked about around the world and watched very closely by those in this field, at least, uh, who have been watching the Middle East for, for decades. Uh, but with that, I'm going to go ahead and close out the episode. We we're already going on quite long. Uh, these last, man, coming back from this hiatus, I've had a couple longer episodes than normal, I think. Uh, so I'll do my best to keep them a little shorter in the future, but uh, I really appreciate you guys tuning back in after several months uh, of taking a break. Um, please, you know, spread the word about the podcast, especially as you know, if I have any students out there going back to school who are you know dealing with online or hybrid classes and want someone to kind of break down these issues more in a podcast style. You know, please spread the word about this. Share it with your friends. If you have topics you want me to break down, whether it's you know some specific theory, you know, like I, I've done, I did a whole series back probably a year ago now on some of the grand theories of international relations, like realism and liberal institutionalism, uh, constructivism, all these things. If you, you have a specific theory you want me to break down, shoot me a message, you know, on on social media, and I'd be happy to to talk about it and put it, put it in the queue for a future episode. So how do you, how do you do that? So there's really two best ways to reach me. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is Justin R underscore Kinney. Uh, please find me, follow me there, hit that follow button. Uh, I'd be happy to in engage with you and interact talking more about this issue or any others. Or as I said, if you have future uh, suggestions for topics, I'd love to talk about that as well. So you can reach me on there. If you want to reach me on Facebook, you don't do the Twitter thing. I have an author page called J. Robert Kinney. You can find me on there. Find that page, hit that follow button, the like button, I think it is. 
Um, that's primarily where I post my fiction author updates. I, I have written two books that are published out right now, one called Precipice and one called Splintered State. They're kind of mystery novels. A Splintered State, though, has more of an international flair with uh, even some international terrorism elements as well, kind of more of the international terrorist thriller genre. And I'm actually working on my third right now. I'm, it's, in the, it's actually a full draft done. I'm in the editing process. So any sort of updates on the author front will be posted there, but you can absolutely reach me through J. Robert Kenny on Facebook as well to talk about this podcast. I'd love to talk with you more about it. Uh, if you're at all interested in sponsoring the podcast, advertising on the podcast, or in any way supporting uh, the work that I do with this, you know, please reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk with you more about that possibility, or you can find my Patreon account online as well uh, and support me through that. But uh, I believe that's all the administrative stuff I have for you guys. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and close things out. Same way I always do. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one. Yeah.